Welcome to the reading of Dr. Richard Ganz's book, Psychobabble, The Failure of Modern Psychology and the Biblical Alternative. Copyright 1993 by Richard Ganz. This book is read and distributed with the author's permission. This MP3 audio file is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books, which offers a large selection of free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed resources on the web at swrb.com. We continue our reading on page 117. Chapter 11 When Christianity Doesn't Work I had been a Christian no more than a month when Harry came to see me. He told me a lurid story of countless homosexual escapades he'd had while traveling with the circus as an acrobat. He described his conversion to me, and I was able to rejoice in his deliverance from sin, or so I thought. What actually emerged was not a story of deliverance, but a narrative of complaint. He complained that Christianity did not work for him. I asked what he meant. He had told me that although he had not practiced homosexuality, since becoming a Christian several months before, neither had his interest or desire in homosexuality abated. He told me that he could not go on as a Christian if these feelings were not removed. Harry expected that Christ would remove his desire for homosexual contact. When that didn't happen, Harry decided he was an example of a case where Christianity didn't work. I was a young Christian at that time, and there was a certain cogency to Harry's argument. I, too, thought that being born again meant the obliteration or instant zapping away of all lusts and angers, that one shouldn't have to be struggling against sin. Fortunately, I moved beyond this point. I came to see that the glory of our faith is not that we have no desire to sin, but that we do not have to act on that desire. I also came to learn that it was God who gave us the power to say no to sin. It was God who made us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 I lost contact with Harry at that point, but I haven't lost contact with the fact that countless Christians walk around all their lives believing what Harry believed and are thus defeated before they begin. They never seem to understand that when it seems as though Christianity doesn't work, they have misread the problem. Is there a time when Christianity doesn't work? Yes, Christianity does not work when there is a false expectation regarding what the Christian life is all about. It doesn't work when there is little or improper teaching of biblical precepts and standards. It does not work when there is a lack of commitment to the disciplines involved in perseverance and growth. It does not work in isolation from other believers. Most important, it does not work apart from the saving grace of God through Christ. But Christianity does work for sinners. The first step necessary for anyone's ultimate good is to enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, submitting to His Lordship and then living according to His plan. This is the definition of righteous living. 
a person who incidentally lives a good life aside from a conscious submission to God will be blessed by the common grace associated with the avoidance of evil, but he or she will not be living a righteous life. Righteousness is attributed to believers through the sacrifice of Christ. The one who rejects Christ will face the penalty for failure to receive Christ's righteousness, no matter how apparently good the person is. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 Cleaning up the externals of a life without cleaning the inside, possible only through the blood of Jesus, brought the serious charge of woe to you on the Pharisees. For this reason, the presentation of the gospel is an important part of newthetic counseling. The end result of a superficial quick fix is that a relatively clean, for example sober as opposed to drunk, sinner, still stands before God in judgment. Therein lies both the foundational need for newthetic counseling and the grave danger in shipping people wounded by sin off to the secular professionals. Without a changed heart, any put-off sinful behavior is merely put on hold. The counselee remains bound by the law of sin and death, not yet released by the law of the Spirit of Life. Romans 8.2 Biblical counseling expresses the demand not only to put off the sinful habits of life under the old regime, but to put on the righteous habits of new life in Christ. If a person refrains from sinful habits but puts nothing in their place, he eventually will be back where he began. On the other hand, if he ceases his iniquitous behavior and replaces it with new depraved activities, he can wind up worse than before. The only antidote for sin is a righteous life lived according to the word of God. This is not a one-step operation. We are responsible to do right day by day and moment by moment. This can be either an overwhelming responsibility or a wonderful opportunity. Seizing the opportunity involves making sure not to succumb to the numerous and inevitable temptations of the moment. It means being ready in prayer. It means being ready to act in accord with the teachings of the Bible even when it is difficult and may hurt. How can it hurt? It hurts enough that most people never engage themselves in doing what the Bible teaches. Relinquishing sin can be like giving up a cherished part of ourselves. The Bible is uncompromising and unbending in its moral boundaries. Because of this, it is an entirely trustworthy, sure, and solid standard for behavior. It is unyielding in its intolerance of sin. It will never say, for example, you're committing adultery, but hey, you really love her, and you have such a nice relationship. Your wife is such a nag. I guess in this situation it's okay. No, never. Instead, it demands righteous living that is pure and spotless. The Bible demands not just any action, but righteous action. This is easier said than done. How many times have we seen people who, despite what seems to be the best of intentions, 
fail repeatedly. Counselors, friends, and all concerned wonder why. People fall short of genuine change either because they don't want to change or because they don't know what is required of them. The patterns from the past become deeply ingrained in their lives. They learn habits that are incredibly destructive, yet counselors often neglect to teach them how to break with those patterns and do what is right. Often counselors do not know themselves. They have not understood the awesome implication of these words, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4, 22-24 NIV The Bible is replete with counsel on how to put off sin and put on righteousness. Biblically, a thief is no longer a thief when he stops stealing and starts working with his hands to provide for the poor. Ephesians 4.28 We are not to get drunk on wine, but are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 Paul commands us not to be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Philippians 4, 6, NIV, Emphasis Mine. He states elsewhere that each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Ephesians 4, 25, NIV, Emphasis Mine. The successful dismantling of sinful habits is a two-step process, breaking old patterns and forming new ones. While all this takes place in the reality of the Spirit, the seat of both of these operations is in our thinking. We assimilate negative attitudes about ourselves that we allow to determine much of what we do or do not do. I am not talking about self-esteem or self-image. I am talking simply about learning. If a person has been told all his life that he is stupid, he may very well believe that he is dumb, even though he may be intelligent. If he has grown up being told he is an awkward klutz, should it come as any surprise when he fails repeatedly in tasks and skills demanding coordination and dexterity? He may even want to do these things, but find himself stuck behind the message that says he cannot. So he doesn't try, therefore failing before he begins. If he does try and then fails, he sees that as confirmation of his inabilities. What people tell us about ourselves influences, although it does not determine, what we believe about ourselves and what we can do. Parents especially should be aware that their comments to their children will mold much of these young lives. For example, when a child comes home from school with mediocre exam results, reacting properly is important. What an idiot or any moron would have done better than that is not a proper response. I mention this because the best situation is to get it right from the beginning.
Treating a child like a criminal contributes to future criminality. But the adult criminal is still without excuse for his behavior. He cannot blame his parents, his siblings, his environment, his teachers. That notwithstanding, good and godly parenting will foster godly children. The Bible is clear and summarizes this for us when it says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22:6. In other words, we learn to be behave good, and we learn to be behave bad. We learn to view ourselves as those who can accomplish much, or we learn to view ourselves as hopelessly incapable. Since learning is so important, we should not be surprised at how important teaching is. The first and most important teachers for a child are the parents. They must be careful to teach according to biblical guidelines. If all that ever comes from their mouths is criticism, often their children will give up. Perhaps parents criticize because the child attempts something new, something he doesn't know how to do. He may create a mess, which is no big deal, but if he is harshly criticized, he may fear to try again. When the child becomes an adult and finally gains knowledge and skill, he may respond as though he is still the incapable child who made a displeasing mess. It has become his habit to do so. Bad habits are most deadly in the realm of values and morals. It is tragic when individuals act like criminals because that's what they have been taught they are. These individuals are responsible for their actions, but others retain responsibility for their influence. We must make sure that the fruit of the Spirit is operative in our lives. This demands patience, gentleness, and a loving kindness to discipline and nurture children who do not live up to our often unrealistic expectations. The new Ten Commandments for some parents seem to be don't touch, don't grab, don't speak, don't enjoy, etc. Yet when the children grow up morose and habitually negligent of God's commandments, parents wonder why. Children have been taught another set of commandments. Then, when it is to our advantage, we expect them to shift gears and become happy, content Christian young people. They aren't interested in such hypocrisy and often respond with harmful, destructive, and sinful habits. These habits are the former way of life that Paul insists must be put off and replaced with the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Sin is not only entered into habitually, sin is habitual. No sins left to themselves just go away. Sin is either atoned for by the blood of Christ and then put off day by day in the Christian, or else it is left to spread like cancer. This is not to say that all negative habits are sinful. A person may drink a lot of coffee, which is a negative habit, but it is not necessarily sin. Habits like this can easily lead to sin. If a person drinks too much coffee, he can harm himself with nervous disorders, ulcers, and lack of sleep. 
excessive coffee drinking for him has become a self-destructive sin. Most sinful habit patterns are something an individual believes he cannot get along without. There is security in following a pattern even if that pattern is sinful and destructive. Counselors often forget that it takes courage to tear oneself from these long-term, life-dominating patterns. People need to realize that the Word of God speaks truth, demands righteousness, and offers hope. There is an alternative to sin. There is a way out. God's commandments must be obeyed. He provides the strength to obey them, even when it hurts. This is where growth takes place. Paul gives great encouragement to the struggler. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 12-14, NIV, Emphasis Mine. The willingness to obey is the starting point. Let me put it more simply. We have a will to do either what is right or what is wrong. The fruit of the Spirit includes self-control. The dramatic changes needed in our lives are under our control. I don't mean by this that we are sovereign. I simply mean that no allowance is made for default on our responsibility. The choice is ours, whether to live or to groan. The choice is ours as children of God, whether to sit and snivel over past hurts or outrages and squander our lives, or to seize the opportunity to live joyously and hopefully. Nothing, not even the greatest sin, needs stand in the way of the new life.